2: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But that's—you might be onto something with the government question. Maybe I'm like living out my my work fantasies <laughs> on the page here. I don't know.
1: <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 258. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader: What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Reading for pure escapism means something different for every reader. Some of us turn to puzzle-like mysteries. Some of us immerse ourselves in fantastical worlds. Today's guest stays away from doom-scrolling by reading lots and lots and lots of romance. Recovering English major Jenna Lowenstein still enjoys the occasional literary fiction read, but these days she's picking up the books she wants to read. Instead of forcing the books, she feels like she should read. From spicy romance novels to thrillers with deep themes, books help Jenna set aside her high-pressure job in politics and engage with the world, without looking at her news app. I had so much fun talking with Jenna about her romance spice-level ratings, the importance of comfort reads, and what it means to read for peace, joy, and escapism. Let's get to it. Jenna, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And I have to tell you, often listeners, when we chat, we want it to sound fresh, even though you don't actually listen to us talk live, unless we have like a really special event for our Patreon community or we do something online. We keep thinking it would be fun to record one of these lives and let, let everybody listen in. But I mean, Jenna, the truth of the matter is you work in politics, and we're talking before election day, and this is going to air just after election day, and I have no idea what the state of the world is right now if you're listening, readers, but we're going to dig in knowing that we're like operating in this tension. But you work in (laughs) politics. You can handle the tension, I think.
2: We love the tension, but I feel like this podcast taping is a little bit of escapism for me. Uh, the same way reading is escapism for me, it's like a little, a welcome distraction from these crazy last six days running up to
1: election day. Oh, well, that puts a big smile on my face. I think some people <laughs> are apologetic about saying, oh, well, for me, you know, reading isn't the thing I do to work on my like lifelong readerly PhD, but it's a place I escape. And I think that is fantastic. Okay, tell me a little bit about the escape. Sure. As you said,
2: I work in politics, and and I've been doing that you know, since I graduated college, so 12, 13 years. And it's a really intense lifestyle. Campaigns are so much fun. You work with people these 100-hour weeks. You get to know everyone so well. You're in a foxhole together, but it's also all-consuming and really high pressure. It's kind of like a pressure cooker. Um, and uh, from you a know, lifestyle perspective, the thing that most people compartmentalize into 20 minutes of consuming the news each day is your whole life. You know, you can never turn off um, everything that happens in the news or on social media. um, You have to stop and ask yourself, is this a thing I need to respond to? Is this a thing the candidate I'm working for needs to comment on? Or the organization I'm working with, um, you know, needs to have a policy on. And it means that, you know, you really feel like you're you're sort of on a treadmill all the time. Um, And reading has always been for me, a way to take a step back and force myself to shut down that part of my brain for whatever amount of time because if i'm reading a book i literally cannot be doom scrolling twitter uh, <laughs> if i'm you know walking my dogs and listening to an audiobook that stops me from reading the news at the same time and you know uh, wandering into traffic so it's always been a peaceful and sort of uh, important tool for me to take care of myself and to have an escape from the work i do that's just really Really high intensity.
1: I have a really pragmatic burning curiosity question for you. Shoot. So when you're not walking your dogs listening to an <laughs> audiobook, but you're reading words on a page with your eyes, what format do you prefer to read in? And the reason I'm asking is we talk to so many readers who say, I cannot read books on my phone because the news is mm. one click away. I'm really wondering how you navigate that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I've definitely evolved over time. I used to be an all paper book person. um, And in the last few years, I've definitely realized that's actually just not how I like to read. I sort of aspire. It feels pure to me in some way, but that's not actually how it fits into my life best. And so I am mostly a Kindle app on my phone or audiobook person on my phone. Maybe that says something about my relationship with my phone, but it definitely means that reading is more convenient for me and Once I made that switch, my reading honestly just uh, sort of shot through the roof in terms of volume. I initially with audio struggled to pay attention. I I just think that I I, I found it easy to get distracted, but I realized that there were just some books that I loved in that format. We're going to talk about Tana French in a minute. And I found her books, uh, the Dublin Murder Squad books, so amazing in audio because, you know, the accents and the character performances by the narrators really transported me in a way that I never Mm -hmm. would have gotten from the page you know and kindle on my phone i'm the opposite of the people who feel like the news is one click away it means that the book is one click away for me i'm always on my phone and so that means i can fit in 15 20 30 minute sessions between other stuff that i'm doing
1: are you in political mode right now or is that sloughed off some just because of the specifics of what you're doing and the candidate you're doing it for
2: after Cory Booker's campaign ended for president, I basically took on consulting work in politics. So definitely still a busy season for me. I work with you know a number of organizations that do direct electoral work. And normally this time of year, right before the election, you actually might be calming down. Your plans are all set and you're just sort of executing. But actually, mm-hmm. I think this year, because... You know, there's concerns about a contested election or how long it might take to count. Most folks in politics are working overtime to put plans in place for what it looks like to make sure every vote gets counted what kind of work do we need to do to you know mobilize the public to support a fair count in the days and weeks after election day we we don't expect it to be over next tuesday unfortunately or last tuesday when this podcast airs <laughs> so definitely thinking about that a lot how do we how do we mobilize folks to you know make sure a
1: fair process happens oh well i'm so interested in hearing what you turn to when you wish to escape from the news and your work life, I imagine we'll get into that when we start talking about your books. So for right now, I'd love to hear what your reading life is like now and has been like in the not not too distant past.
2: I would definitely say the last few years post the 2016 election have been a bit of a reading renaissance for me. The time for me between college and 2016 is about 10 years. I think because my career was in sort of high gear, I struggled to fit reading in sometimes. And I was a recovering English major. And I think that I... <laughs> that is a well-trod path. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I sort of put a lot of pressure on myself that I had to read like worthwhile or really important books all the time. And some of those books I really love. And some of those books are really slow and I do not love. And so I definitely was someone who struggled with like opening a book I thought I should read, not loving it, putting it down, and then not reading again for four weeks. It's taken me some time to just really be comfortable with that my goal with reading is to read what I love um, and what I find interesting. And I think probably the 2016 election was a pivot point for me. I was a senior staffer on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. I ran her digital. It was a really intense two years for me, 2015 and 2016. And when it ended the way it did, I definitely, like many people, went into a period of time where I was a little bit shocked and I needed to figure out ways to take care of myself. And reading was a huge uh, part of that for me in the last two months of 2016, so November and December, I read something like 40 books and I'd read five books the 10 months previous, you know. Um, I really just fell into other worlds to have a chance to get away from the one that I was in. And so in the time since then, you know, I've found more sort of reading communities. I found this podcast in early 2017. That was a important part of sort of my reading journey, built relationships with other readers in my life who who read more and more widely than I do and could help me tap into new books that I wouldn't have heard of otherwise. It's just become a much more consistent part of my life over the last 4 years. I probably read between I don't know, like 40 and 60 books a year. Pretty wide um, from a genre perspective. Yeah, it's just like the hobby for me that brings me a lot of um, peace and joy, and frankly, escapism from the news, as we as we talked about.
1: Those are big jobs you're doing in your late 20s and your early 30s, and we all laughed at what should I read next HQ when your submission form came in, listeners. That's at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com read slash guest, and you said that you're starting to think of yourself as semi retired at the <laughs> ripe old age of 33, and just figuring out next steps. And how that reinvesting in your hobbies was a part of that. We smiled and we nodded and we also chuckled because you know the ripe old age of thirty three. Totally. It's like you're a major league pitcher or something.
2: And I, of course, do not mean retired in the uh, in the literal sense of the word. This work does not pay sufficiently to provide for a retirement <laughs> at thirty three. But yeah, I mean. The work that I did for a decade, you move every year, uh, you move where the campaign is, you work 100 hour weeks, you don't exercise, you don't talk to your family <laughs> nearly enough. Actually, when I started working for Hillary Clinton at the beginning of 2015, my lovely wife, uh, then fiance, who had worked for Barack Obama in 2012, pulled my parents aside and said, hey, I just like want to let you know how this is going to go. I promise she still loves you, but like you're not going to hear from her all the time. and And just that's not anything about her. It's not anything about you. It's just how it is and that life is so addictive and fun and important. The work you're doing is is really meaningful, but it's also sort of a young person's game. And, and there's a point where I wanted to just prioritize some other things in my life too. And so I'm definitely at a phase, as you said, at the right age of 33, where I'm trying to figure out how I can continue to do work that I find really meaningful, um, which for me means mission-oriented, and also carve out time and space for my growing family. Uh, we have two little dogs. We have a kiddo on the way. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And part of that is, you know, reinvesting in in my hobbies and and reading and, and making
1: space for things that aren't all work all the time. Well, Jenna, it brings me joy that reading is something you're turning to for these things in your life. And thank you for letting me and this community be a part of it. That's so good to hear. Thank you. Okay. So you mentioned casual book talks with friends and finding recommendations. And so now I have to ask you to tell me more about the book club in your life. So a
2: book club is probably a stretch of the description. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think uh, it fulfills the same purpose. We're going to go with it. Totally fair. Okay. So I sort of have a book club for romance reading. Um, in reality, it's a group text message with, you know, I think five women who I've worked with in various political, political jobs. Um, and I think just furtively over time we all realized, oh, you read this too, you read this too, started making recommendations to each other. You know, one of the things I think about our business is it's first of all, really male dominated even now, you know, I think women in politics tend to stick together because there aren't that many of them and there aren't that many of them in leadership roles. And so when you add on to that, like, I have this hobby that's traditionally really sort of feminized or or not taken seriously, which is reading romance, it can feel like something you don't want to talk about publicly, but we found each other and maybe inspired by uh, the model of Stacey Abrams, the, you know, badass woman who ran for governor of Georgia in 2018 and is also a successful romance novelist on the side. Wait, 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 wait.
1: What? You don't know that? How did I not know this? Yeah, Stacey Abrams. She's a romance novelist under a different name. Is this common knowledge and I just completely missed this important news? Wow. I'm glad we had this conversation,
2: Jenna her pen name is Selena Montgomery. And she has like a, you know, eight or
1: 10 books. (laughs) Do I just want to have heard of Selena Montgomery or have I actually, that name sounds familiar. Maybe my brain is just trying to cover its tracks. Okay. I'm glad we have this conversation. Carry on. We've all felt really lucky to find each other with a shared hobby and
2: maybe felt inspired by Stacey Abrams' uh, willingness to sort of own her second career or first career as a romance novelist. And we started, in addition to making recommendations for each other, you know, we put together, it's so silly, but like a guide for romance for the uninitiated that we pass around to other women in the business that we uh, learn may have an interest in these books. Okay. You said it's so silly. Well, okay, that's my former English major speaking probably. (laughs) You know, I think that no, it's not silly. And actually, I'm, I want to be someone who doesn't think of things as guilty pleasures, but I definitely think of romance reading as, for me at least, pure escapism. That's what I like to do when I just like need to shut out the world totally. And I know how it's going to end. And it's really comforting. You know, it's like a warm blanket or a puppy. You know, it's just like pure comfort, no challenge. That's certainly what I get out
1: of reading romance. I definitely relate to that. I had a really hard summer and I read, I think I read like, it wasn't pure romance novels, except for a three week period where it really might've been. I was going through like a book a day, pure escapism. And I am so glad those books were there for me.
2: At the beginning of the pandemic, sometime in April, maybe, um, my friend Amanda Lippman and I uh, decided that we were going to take on the Bridgerton books by Julia Quinn. There's 8 of them and we read them straight in about 3 days. Um we basically didn't come up for air. Uh,
1: <laughs> wow, that's a lot of pages it's per hour. so many
2: pages, but it's so fast. You know, you just sort of run through it and we were sharing our reviews with this group in real time. My poor wife like probably didn't see me for 3 days. Um but
1: <laughs> so the group text was hopping.
2: Exactly. The group text was hot. <laughs> um and lots happening. And so yeah,
1: I definitely I definitely relate to what you said. I think it can be just such a comforting sort of escape valve. So not only were the five of you lighting up this group text, I mean, during the Bridgerton series, but also just on an ongoing basis, you felt compelled to put together a guide because I imagine many of you were having conversations with other readers on a regular basis for this thing to come into existence. I'd love to hear the story there.
2: I think as a few of the folks in that group started sharing some of our reading publicly, you know, in my case, this is the first year I've really been a participant in bookstagram. You know, I I share a lot of my reading um, on Instagram stories. Uh, some of my other friends have started that too. We started getting folks responding when we would post a book that falls into that romance genre, you know, Tessa Bailey's series that started with Fix Her Up has been a favorite of our group of friends. And I remember when I posted about one of them, like 20 people responded who I never would have expected to say, I really love these reviews, keep them coming. And I think that just prompted us that we had kind of amassed a enormous body of knowledge about what was good or what what we liked at least. And I think particularly with romance, sort of like what falls into what spice levels is important for new readers. And so uh, we put together this guide to just help people navigate the world if it was new to them. Tell
1: me more about the spice levels, because the bookstagram you see candle emojis you see eggplant emojis and mm. you use the chili peppers which are
2: just so adorable we do we use the chili peppers we go from one to four one chili pepper is more of like a romantic comedy or you know women's fiction something like that where it's definitely closed door everything happens off the pages you know moving up to two chili emojis might be a little steamy but as our guide says it's not so explicit that you could diagram anything um, <laughs> and then
1: uh, up to four chili peppers which is you know Um, We say read at your own risk. Your description of Kate Claiborne's titles made me laugh. Love lettering, which was in the summer reading guide readers. Go check it out. It gets two chili peppers, but it's very explicit about his love for New York City. If you're into that, that made me grin.
2: (laughs) Um, and the chili peppers have been um, both handy and also uh, occasionally awkward. I did post sort of my review of one of, I think it was actually another one of the Tessa Bailey books earlier this year on Instagram, and I didn't include a chili pepper warning. And so then I added another slide and said, like, fair warning, here's the chili peppers. And my rabbi, who is a lovely woman and friend, um, responded to my story with like a fire emoji. And <laughs> I was truly like, I really need to think more about the audience of <laughs> Stories before I post them. (laughs)
1: Um, Have you all had any further conversations about that? We have not. It it was really just the one emoji. Yeah, we left it there. (laughs) Okay, if Jenna's Rabbi wants to come talk books on what should I read next, we'd love to have a follow up conversation. (laughs) Totally. I'll let her know. Okay, what kind of feedback have you gotten from sharing this guide with uh, the uninitiated?
2: I think people have just been really delighted. The same experience that, you know, my core group of uh, romance reading friends and I have had, which is like, oh, you like this too? We can talk about it. We can swap recommendations. We've had that same response. One of the coolest things is like, half the people who've gotten added to the document have added stuff. You know, they drop in comments, they drop in other recommendations, and and just we incorporate those over time. We have sort of no pride of ownership here. Uh, it's it's just sharing things that we love with each other. And so if other folks have suggestions, we love that too.
1: Have you found that you're not the only one who is looking for escapist reads right now?
2: Yeah, I think that this is a rough year for everybody. And sort of whatever your choice of escapism is, I, my guess is that um, you're over indexing on it. You know, at least for the folks who I talk romance with, we all read really broadly romances, you know, one lane. Um, but a common theme in that chat right now is it's the only thing we can read. It's the only thing we can get through, particularly late at night, if we're up and stressed about the world or or things like that. It's just, um, it's the easiest thing to turn to and, and the thing that we can get through, honestly.
1: Yeah. And I know that everybody's escapism can look a little bit different. Like I'm thinking of my episode with Hanan al I think that was episode 233. It's called Escaping into Someone Else's Story. And she says, look, like you want your light feel good reads to escape. I want to escape into somebody else's like really terrible darkness. That's what feels mm-hmm. good to me. But we do hear themes from readers. A little bit of a genre recalibration for 2020 is a theme I'm hearing a lot. Mm-hmm. Thanks for doing your part. To help readers find find a good story to escape it to.
2: Yeah, totally. I'm curious if you see beyond romance, like do you see people really falling into like spy thrillers, like other things that also feel sort of comfortably formulaic or do you think it's a broader uh, realignment than that?
1: Ooh, okay. Here's my off the cuff first draft pie chart. So Hanan in her somebody else's darkness, that's got like a 10% slipper. That's one piece. That's one normal piece of blueberry pie. It's not a sliver, but it's not like a super size either. Okay. The romance definitely gets like three pieces of pie. I think mysteries also get three mm. pieces of pie. People want a puzzle that they can solve. They can see a problem on the page. They can carry it through and say, you're done. But I do think that a book like the first book of the Devil and Murder Squad, you mentioned that, that might not like be the right book for right now. They want something where it was fixed. And then 2% is I want to read all the cookbooks, food memoir, mm. books about trees, books about biology, books about... I don't know, knitting, the books that kind of exist in another, another world. I can definitely understand that. All right. Somebody can diagram that and send us to us. <laughs> Jenna, that is such a fun picture of your reading life. And I'm so excited from there to get into talking about the books that we forced you to choose.
2: It was a little bit of a, um, a challenge to choose, but i um, so ready to go there. How did you choose? So I definitely think there's a recency bias to the books that I chose. Um, these are books that I'm still thinking about right now. I definitely struggled. I wanted them to be representative of the things that I love. I was like, how will Anne know that I love middle grade if I don't include middle grade? Or how will she know that I love travel memoirs if I don't include Bill Bryson? But I had to get to three. And so uh, what, I, what I did was, was just think about the books that I read recently that I really love, that I talk
1: about a lot, that I share a lot. And this is the list I ended up with okay, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And then based on what you said, travel memoirs, middle grade, (laughs) we'll we'll narrow it down a little bit, but I'll recommend three titles you may enjoy reading next. Okay, Jenna, tell me about book one.
2: So the first book that I love and I talk about more than any other book, probably, is American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Um, I read this late last year uh, and I still think about it probably every day. And this is the story of Marie Mitchell, who is a brilliant young, um, very young intelligent officer with the FBI in the mid 1980s. I actually loved it, sort of took place right around when I was born, which I thought was. Just a cool way to get a sense of that decade. She's also a Black woman in an all-white boys club at the FBI, and she's really been sidelined throughout her career. The story sort of takes place right as she's recruited for an off-the-books operation um, aimed at undermining the real-life revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso, um, Thomas Sankara. Um, Her task is to go undercover and get close to him and help the FBI and the United States undermine him. I just loved this book. It feels like a thriller from the first page to the very satisfying slash unsatisfying ending. It has that sort of um, velocity and high ratio of plot to two pages that you would get from a thriller, but it also really wrestles with issues of race and colonialism, um, gender and politics. And there was just like a lot more going on there than you would normally get from this kind of thriller. And it was like... Wilkinson sort of set out to flip the genre on its head a little bit, and it just for me was like a really wonderful read, and I, I I really think about it all the time and want to find ten more books just like it.
1: Oh, what a good sign! Although I don't know how you could find ten more books just you like cannot. it, which is I've the tried. <laughs> oh. And if you are an English major, or we're doing book school right now for the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club, and we're talking about reading with a literary lens, like if you're reading with that eye, there is so much there. Yeah. There's so much there. And I actually wasn't familiar with the rich literary tradition of black spy novels that has been a thing for many decades and wilkinson uses does she use an epigraph from w.e.b du bois or am i, I making remember. that up but she's talked about him a lot in interviews and in double mm-hmm. consciousness and how she's consciously doing that in the book and even triple consciousness and how it's just there's so much metaphor happening on the page which you can read yeah you, you can read it just like a spy novel beach read kind of situation and i'm using that in the stereotypical sense obviously you could read Lee mis At the beach and it would be a beach. (laughs) But I think you know what I mean. But if you really want to get nerdy and get into it, there's so much there.
2: Yeah. And there's just so much character development through the book. Her relationships are so rich. The main character with her family and with her colleagues, of course, with Thomas Sankara, who's fictionalized in the book, and -hmm. the people around him. You know, it just it's this like really sort of intimate, character-driven story that's also has these like huge action set pieces i mean the very first pages of the book it's not a spoiler to say you know sh- her life is threatened and and it's sort of a high drama high action situation right from the beginning um so it, what you can expect from the book sort of changes page to page and i, I just really loved it jenna what did you pick for book two Uh, The second book I picked was The Searcher by Tana French. This is a brand new book. And I was so excited that I loved it because I love all of Tana French's books, except I really didn't like. The last one. So I got to know her books through the Dublin Murder Squad series, which were actually the first books I really listened to on audio. And the ability to hear the accents from the narrator just really sucked me into that world. And I mainlined them like in three weeks in 2018, (laughs) Um, just all of them. Um, So I was so excited a year or two ago when The Witch Elm came out, and then that book was just sort of not for me. I really struggled to get into it. I definitely didn't finish it. I read like 100 pages. And so I had a lot of, I think, trepidation when The Searcher came out because I knew, like The Witch Elm, it was set outside of her Dublin Murder Squad series. There's a lot of differences between it and the Dublin Murder Squad, but I was hopeful. So just to tell the story of the book for a second, Tana French is telling the story of a retired Chicago cop, Cal Hooper, who leaves his career and his sort of estranged family behind and moves to Ireland, he wants like this quiet life where he can fix up a dilapidated farmhouse and not really talk to anybody. And everything about that was different than the Dublin Murder Squad books. You know, it's an American protagonist. It's a rural setting instead of a city. And, you know, so I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be for me. And, and really nerdy. This is the first time she's written in the third
1: person. That's true. Yes. Bum, bum, bum.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, from page one, she's trying to do something different here, like capital letters, trying to do something different. Cal's sort of quiet life gets upended when this neighborhood kid comes by and asks Cal to, tra- to help track down a missing brother. And so all of a sudden, he has to be a detective again. I mean, I just loved this book, too. Um, I feel like that's all I'm saying about these books, but I loved it. And <laughs> I read a lot of the interviews that Tana French did about this book, and she described it. As sort of an Irish Western. And that's one of the things that she talked about a lot is that she wanted to take the sensibilities or the shape of a Western and transplant it to Ireland. But actually what I really liked about it was that it felt like a detective novel, but she was really using it to sort of undermine what a detective novel can be. You know, I think one of the parts about this book that really resonated with me that I really was interested in was she sort of uses this story to explore the current moment that we're all sort of in as a society, struggling with structural racism, with the role of police in society. Cal uproots his life because he has this sort of growing unease about his complicity as he he thinks of himself as a good cop and he struggles with the bad cops he works alongside. And I think that it was really interesting for me for her to use the form of a detective novel to sort of question everything about what a detective novel is based on. Like, are these our heroes? You know, what does justice look like when it's not as clean or pat as you might normally get in a novel like this? And I just thought it felt really current and really brave for her to sort of wrestle with these questions in this
1: format. I loved it. Okay. So, so far you've chosen two novels that subvert important governmental institutions. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> is that just a total coincidence? They don't feel the same.
2: That is a coincidence maybe. I thought you were going to see something else, which is two novels that sort of subvert the gen- the genre form a little bit, which is a thing that I thought about when I was pulling my list together. Both of these like the similarity for me is that they could sort of be read as like a normal detective novel or a normal spy thriller, but they both have like a lot of depth and really interesting characters. But that's, you might be onto something with the government question. Maybe I'm like living out my my work fantasies <laughs> on the page here, I don't know.
1: <laughs> that seems like a much safer place to live
2: them out. I, I wouldn't want to be either of these protagonists. Totally, I only want my coups in books, not in, not in real life. <laughs> Words to live by.
1: Yes. Okay, so tell us what subverts the genre next.
2: No, I'm kidding. What did you choose for your third book? <laughs> Yeah, my third book was Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo. I had previously read uh, The Fire on High and loved it and in particular recommended it to my niece who's in high school who isn't a huge reader, but uh, she got into that. And um, so Elizabeth Acevedo has sort of become uh, someone I keep my eye on because I'm like, what else can I pass down to this young reader? I'm not sure what I expected when I opened Clap When You Land. I don't think I knew it was in verse when I picked it up. It's a novel in verse that follows two 16-year-old sisters, Yahara in New York and Camino in the Dominican Republic, and they don't know of each other's existence until their father dies in a plane crash and their worlds are sort of thrown together. I tore through this in one night and really had to force myself to slow down to enjoy the writing because it was so beautiful. But I just loved, again, just like the velocity of it. It was like this beautiful intimate story, but it moved really fast. And the characters were just so beautifully drawn. And I felt like I knew them at the end of the book. And it just felt really special.
1: I love her. And I'm so glad you had that reading experience. And I know that you didn't choose a middle grade novel. You (laughs) snuck in that you enjoy reading those. But I I see, Jenna, that you chose a YA novel. And I I I imagine that that's not a coincidence. You kind of spoke a little bit to a fear of missing out. Hmm. If you do have a lot of breadth in your reading life. I think I've read a lot of YA
2: and loved a lot of YA, but it doesn't always sort of rise to the top of my favorites list because I think for me, it can sometimes feel almost escapist like romance does. I think it sort of feel to me a little contained and um, safe, even if the stories are as fully fleshed out or dramatic as an adult story would be or a story written for adults. But this book for me felt just so specific and so intimate. And I just, felt when I was reading it, like I was sitting in the room with the characters and it just felt, I guess, tangible and um, just really special. And so that's why it made it onto my list.
1: Okay. We can work with that. Now, was it difficult to choose a book that you didn't love?
2: You know, I had just like an immediate gut reaction when I had Mm -hmm. to, it was much easier for me to pick actually than Mm -hmm. the books I loved. Although it almost felt irrelevant because like I hated it. And so I've never read anything else like it again. <laughs> um, so it's like not. <laughs> um, All right.
1: We got to know. Tell me about it.
2: Yeah. So the book I don't love, and I I think it's fair to say hate, is The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Um, This is such a great example of what I think you talk about on the podcast all the time. You know, excellent books can just not be excellent for me. Um, This book won so many awards, and, you know, this is like a much celebrated author, and I just hated it. And um, literally, when I try to remember what happened in it, I feel like I'm physically in a dense fog, and I get so irrationally mad. I just found it so frustrating. I think maybe fundamentally magical realism is not for me. There are exceptions. I really liked Robin Sloan's Sourdough, for example, which definitely Mm -hmm. has elements of magical realism in it. But something about The Ocean at the End of the Lane, just like how slippery it is, as soon as I would get invested in something, a character or a plot point, it just turned into something
1: else. It it, It just was so frustrating and not for me. So sometimes I want to gently push readers' boundaries. I think we're just (laughs) going to leave fantasy alone today, though.
2: I think that's fair. Okay. Tell me about what you've been reading lately. Yeah. So um, I just finished uh, Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam, which honestly, Uh I thought about bumping into my favorite books because I am obsessed with it. I can't stop talking about it. I've recommended it to 100 people in the week since I read it. Um, It's so good. I feel like he must have had... A crystal ball to know it was coming this year uh, to sit down and write this book. For folks who haven't read it yet, it's about a Brooklyn family who go on vacation to stay in an Airbnb in Long Island, and their vacation gets interrupted late one night when uh, the owners of the house knock on the door. They're a a wealthy, elderly Black couple, and they've rushed home from New York City where something bad has happened that's sort of unnamed or, or undetermined. And the two families have to hunker down together in this house. As time passes, they see more and more signs of you know something is wrong in the world, but they're cut off from communication and they don't know what it is. And it just like forces you as a reader to think about these questions that feel so timely in twenty twenty. You know, when you're confronted with the end of the world, what would you do? Um, could you do anything? And um, you watch these families just like do nothing, and it. Um, it drives you crazy, but also makes you wonder what you're doing uh, as as you look at the world and and things that are changing that you don't love and and I I just thought it was really masterful, um and I underlined like half of the book because every other sentence was gorgeous <laughs> or meaningful or yeah just loved it. Oh, that sounds so good. And I'm reading The Violence Inside Us by Chris Murphy. Mm-hmm. It's a nonfiction book. Full disclosure that I worked for Senator Murphy in 2018, but I promise that I'm reading this book by choice. Most politician's books, I think, are somewhere on the scale between unnecessary and terrible. But this one is not (laughs) either of those things. Um, It's actually really good. So if you're not familiar with Chris Murphy, he represents Connecticut in the United States Senate. And that includes Newtown, the site of the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School back in 2012. And he also represents Hartford and Bridgeport and these other parts of the state where there's like daily gun violence. And he's just sort of wrestling with those experiences. And the question of whether there's something uniquely American about violence is about halfway through. It's so fascinating. Learning about the biology of violence has been really fascinating and and sort of the history. And I
1: think it's just a really great read. Now, Jenna, when you think about your future reading life, what are you looking for right now? What do you want to be different? What do you want more of?
2: I've noticed a commonality in the books that I love sort of across genre, which is that they like move really fast. They're really propulsive and sort of regardless of genre. And I struggle to identify that in advance, you know, so I don't know until I'm reading a book whether it's going to feel sort of exciting and like move with velocity. But I'd love to figure out ways to identify that better so that I can, you know, do better selection when I'm picking up books.
1: Okay. I'm excited to dig into these. So you loved American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. The Searcher by Tana French and Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo. Not For You, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. And I'm realizing that I forgot to ask you a very important question. You mentioned that you've thought about American Spy nearly every day since you read it. Hmm. Those are big words. Tell me more about that.
2: What just felt so special about that book to me and is also true of the other two on my favorites list is just how skillfully it dives into the issues that I find like really compelling and important to think about the world, you know, how race shapes our experiences or gender or, you know, how uh, our socioeconomic backgrounds shape our access to different things in the world. It's, like the opposite of preachy, it's just also an incredibly powerful story um, that weaves those things in so seamlessly that um, you sort of don't realize you're getting the important message with just like the really dynamic, powerful storytelling. I think that pairing is really important for me and is common to really all the books that I love.
1: Okay. And we're looking for fast moving books that make you think and have a lot of depth and maybe also take you away. To other places where you'd rather be than the real world right now. Can we work with that? That's fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> should we start with the literary or should we start with the romance?
2: Let's start with the romance, move on to vegetables. (laughs) Let's do it.
1: First of all, I know we've talked about this book on the show, but if you haven't read Beach Read by Emily Henry, I think you may find that fun oddly in the same way that you found American Spy and The Searcher fun. I noticed that it's not on your romance novels for the uninitiated doc. Is this a book that you've read or familiar with?
2: I have read this book, and I, I think you're totally right that one of the things I loved about it is... It felt familiar, like romance, but there was just so much more going on. And I really like how she sort of subverted the structure that you you expect
1: going in to like, tell a really interesting story. You're on the right path. I like it. Next, I'm wondering about another romance novel, not on the document. It's a new release from Alexis Daria. It's called You Had Me at Ola. I don't know this. Oh, okay. That makes me happy. This is a romance that opens with a... Memorable meet cute, although it's more like a meet messy. It happens on a film set and the things that Daria does with structure is really fun. It's about a soap opera star. Her name is Jasmine, and she is trying to move on from a very public breakup with a musician. She has landed a leading lady role in a telenovela called Carmen in Charge, and she's going to be Carmen, and it's it's a big, big deal for her career. She's really excited because she wants to elevate her career instead of being stuck in doing soap operas forever. Her words, character's words on that. Her co-star in this is a telenovela star named Ashton, who has a big reputation. He's also looking to move beyond where he feels like he's been pigeonholed in the world of telenovelas. Like he wants a you know better career, more money, and more stability for the family that he hasn't told anybody about because he's got his own stuff in the past. So they meet on set when he um, smashes into her with a ginormous iced coffee, and she ends (laughs) up. It's really funny. She ends up instead of going in her very like elegant, carefully chosen clothes to the table read. She's wearing like a three sizes, two small sweatshirt and some really short shorts. And she's got to own it because she is a leading lady who's going to be a badass queen. And she has her own group text, like seeking reassurance from her friends. This is a romance novel. You know, they're destined to be together, but watching the way that these two characters and their respective crews navigate like all the obstacles thrown at them, filming really like spicy scenes for the show while navigating their own personal relationship, I think you could find it a lot of fun. And something that's also fun about the structure of this book is you get the story in real time interspersed with like scripts from recording television show. And that's, I think the English major in you and the romance aficionado would find that a fun touch. How does that sound? That sounds so fun. Okay. That is You Had Me at Ola by Alexis Daria. Okay. Next, I want to give you something to look forward to because this doesn't come out till 2021. Can you work with that? We can do it. Have you read anything by Kate Claiborne? Well, I read Love Lettering. The book I have in mind for you is her February 2020 release. It's called Love at First. And here's what I like about it. You talked about how for a long time you kind of divided your books into worthwhile and fun and escapist. You can say trash. I said trash. (laughs) (laughs) Although we're exploring how that is a false dichotomy. And I really love how in her new novel, she has written a book. I mean, this is what so many good books do so well. And this is very true of many romance novels. She has this book that just reads like easy breezy. It's super fast moving. Like you said, you're just propelled through the plot. But she writes about real people's real issues that are so relatable to so many in such a way that this book can really get you thinking about what really matters in life but the package is just so fun that it like sneaks past your defenses if you if you might have defenses propped up about i don't know examining your past or your future or your important relationships <laughs> so this new novel looks kind of similar to love lettering but it is not a the books are not connected they're not part of a series this one set in chicago And it's about Nora Clark, who moved into her, it might actually be Logan Square, but while this takes place in Chicago, there's not a super, super strong sense of place. It's a little bit there. And if you enjoy reading about Chicago, if you have connections there, if you want to go there one day when we can all travel again, then that could be a fun connection. But you can't visualize yourself like moving through the grids of familiar streets like you can with some stories. Although I will say I noted down a few touristy locations, I totally want to visit when I can do that again. Because of this book. But Nora has always had close ties to Chicago and specifically her grandmother there. And she's currently grieving the loss of her grandmother. She inherited her apartment in this little building. I think it's in Logan Square. I think there was one reference to that, but a little bit north of Chicago. The community in this building is intense and really fun to read about. All the residents have been there forever. They know each other really well. They're very invested in each other's lives. Um, There's a little bit of busybodiness going on in this building, but it's good natured. And it's it's a small building. There's maybe eight residents who all know each other really well. So into this Malou comes Will Sterling because he inherits his uncle's unit when he dies. And Will had no idea his uncle was going to leave this to him. He didn't want it. He didn't know about it. He wasn't close to his uncle. He only met him once. And that was a really, really sad, kind of tragic situation that you'll read about in the book. He doesn't need an apartment in Logan Square. He has a place to live and it's right by his job and he's an ER doctor and he's, he's too busy to, to do all this stuff. But then a coworker's spouse says, you know what you should do? You should clean it up and rent it out on Airbnb. And when Nora and her community here in this apartment building find out that that is his plan, they freak out (laughs) and seek out to basically run him off. But this is a romance, so that's not exactly what happens, Um, but this is really fun. And as Nora and Will get to know each other and you see more of their lives and their friends and their circles, you see that they both have a lot of stuff in their past that has caused a lot of hurt and they got to work through it individually and then together but it's done in such a tender sweet and compelling way I just really think you're gonna like it how does that sound Jenna
2: I think that sounds so fun I love the idea of sort of the cast of people around them in the building I think that can be such a fun dynamic to get to like meet lots of different characters so sounds great okay how about a spy novel love it
1: I'm sorry to say that this one also does not come out until 2021. I don't know why my brain can't just generate some like 2019 spy novels for you. to would be easy to grab off the shelf. I would gladly wake up in 2021. So uh, I, I feel okay <laughs> about it. <laughs> Well, when you wake up in February, this novel is What Can Be Saved by Lisa O'Halloran Schwartz. And Beth Buss just talked about this on our gift episode, and I read it right away. And I can see why she's recommending it to readers, and I think it might be right for you. And I did call this a spy novel, but we're not going to go into that part right now because I don't want to give too much away. The title here speaks to so much. The question is What Can Be Saved? after their eight-year-old son disappears while they are living in Bangkok. The father has been tapped on the shoulder to take an assignment, or so everyone thinks, supervising the building of a bridge. In Thailand, no one's ever there for more than a few years. They end up being there longer than they expected. There are some really interesting scenes that just show the cluelessness of this American family who's come from Washington D.C. where they have deep, deep roots. Just the the cultural disconnect between the American families and there are many of them, and the Thai people is uh, kind of cringy. And it also reminds me of a book we've talked about on the podcast recently by Karen Tanabe. It's called A Thousand Sons, which is set in a different country, but also shows expats whose cultural unawareness causes all kinds of problems. But while they are stationed there, what the family knows then, and also. 47 years later, when the novel actually opens, is that their eight-year-old son, Philip, disappeared after a judo lesson, and they never found out what happened. They eventually left the country and left him behind, assuming that he is dead and they'll never see him again. But when the story opens, his sister gets an email that says, hey, I think I have your brother, and she's like, oh, over the years, they've gotten all kinds of demands for ransoms and requests for money and pay me, i get more information. So she's skeptical, not as skeptical as her older sister, um, but she's very skeptical, but it's him. And with most stories, you'd think, I mean, that would be the whole story. That would be the plot of the novel, like this brother is found. And that's the arc. That is not the arc here. But the way it's carried out, this is a family saga told in alternating timelines, takes place over 47 years, exploring family secrets, long held in devastating misunderstandings, broken relationships, and those that are patched over the years there's a lot here. So you could just breeze through. I've heard so many people say since since it's been on my radar, I've started talking about it with mostly booksellers reading it right now, like, oh my gosh, this is 464 pages. And I've read most of it in a single day. Like this is a fast moving story. But literally, there's also so much to notice and dig into and appreciate on that level as well. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. I can't wait for it to come out. And Jenna, since I just gave you two 2021 releases that are going to need your patience. And since I think you're going to read, you had me at Ola in two days. And the book I have in mind for you is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. I haven't read that. Like we were just talking about with what could be saved. This is a story when it opens where you think we've heard this story before, but we have not heard this story before. And it's tragic, but also there's so much humor here and hearts and this, you know, how some novels do a really fascinating job. I'm totally speaking my biases. I think it's fascinating, but they do a fascinating job of showing you the web of interconnectedness between the characters that the characters have no idea exists and may never find out, but you're Mm -hmm. the reader. You can see what's happening, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's really interesting. This story begins with a shooting in the Cause Houses housing project in South Brooklyn in 1969. This drunk church deacon who wanders into the courtyard one afternoon when everyone's hanging out and he shoots a drug dealer, one that he had had a long standing relationship with, one that he had once treated like a son, and he shoots him in front of everyone. And he becomes a dead man walking at that point, of course. After that, Jolt of a beginning. McBride zooms way out and starts to show the relationships one by one in the community. And he shows you how we got to that moment in time, looking into the life of the shooter and the backstory. And of course, there's tragedy there. And the victim, the drug dealer's friends, are so bumbling. And it makes for so many really funny moments. And then he explores the lives of the residents who witnessed it and the neighbors who are gossiping about it and the undercover cop who's afraid he's going to get find out and uh, who's part of the investigation team and the members of the church where Sportcoat was a deacon and the neighborhood's mobsters and their families, actually one of their mother turns out to be a really important character. And all these people's lives overlap in ways that nobody understands in the beginning. I mean, some people are in the know, and they know like a piece, like a a segment of the web, but nothing like the whole thing. But over the course of the story, McBride gently teases out these connections. I mean, some of which go to the very heart of what matters in the community and what matters in these individuals' lives. There's tragedy here, but there's so much warmth, and it's so funny. I think it'd be fun for you.
2: I think that sounds amazing. I think it checks a lot of boxes for me. We talked about earlier, really interested in like in violence, honestly, in, in novels mm-hmm. and how how that can um, sort of send entire communities spinning. Um, so I think this sounds like great for me. Really, really interested in that.
1: I'm so happy to hear it. Okay, Jenna, of the books we talked about today, You Had Me at Ola by Alexis Daria, Love at First by Kate Claiborne, What Could Be Saved by Lisa O'Halloran Schwartz, and Deacon King Kong by James McBride. What are you most interested in reading next?
2: I think What Could Be Saved sounds so fascinating, but knowing that doesn't come out till 2021, I'm pretty sure I'll have You Had Me at Ola on my Kindle like in the next hour, Um, and Deacon King Kong is also top of the list. So I think they all sound really great. I'm excited
1: for them. Well, I hope they deliver a nice dose of peace, joy, and escapism your way. Thanks so much, Anne. Oh, Janet, this is a delight. Thanks for talking books with me. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jenna and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 258 and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can follow Jenna on Twitter and Instagram at just underscore Jenna. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, find me there at Ann Bogle. That's Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. That is my name on Instagram as well, at Ann Bogle. And you can follow our all books, all the time account, What Should I Read Next? Our newsletter subscribers get the lowdown every Tuesday. I share three things I love, one thing I don't, and what I'm reading now. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the book love. Share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or a tangible way to show your support would be to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash whatshouldireadnext, or to pick up a copy of my book I'd rather be reading for yourself or a friend. It's a wonderful holiday gift. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenner Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.
0: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective Is and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells' Charles Dickens' then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories.